From galleries and museums across the United Kingdom, we bring you the stories of artworks and objects that are made to intrigue. Their stories are the stories of our history and culture. I'm Ben Miller. Welcome to Art and Stuff. Oh, hello. Oh, is it that time already? I really must get up. Places to go, people to see, but bed. Oh, it's the best place in the world, isn't it? So maybe, yeah, five more minutes. And while I'm tucked up under the covers, I hope you're feeling cosy too, because this is the story of one of the biggest beds in England. It was the largest in the land, the most king-sized in the kingdom, quite possibly the most famous piece of furniture in history. First time I saw the great bed of where my eyes nearly popped out with excitement. <laughs> Being a historian of beds, you know, I'd never seen one on such an epic scale before. The bed trails a rather blousy reputation. It's something jovial, even badly behaved or downright disreputable. It's a little bit vulgar, really. They built the bed of Ware as essentially a sort of post-medieval bouncy castle, as a kind of entertainment. You know, let's beat a path to Ware because we're going to stay in this vast bed. A three-metre-wide tester bed. Unknown maker, circa 1590, carved and originally painted. Decorated with panels of marquetry, part of the collection of the Victorian Albert Museum in London. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Great Bed of Ware. So, the Great Bed of Ware. Extremely large, extremely elaborate, extremely famous. Quite possibly the most famous thing ever to come out of Ware, which is, by the way, a very nice market town in Hertfordshire. My name is Nick Humphrey. I'm a curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum, where I work in the Department of Furniture, Textiles and Fashion, and I'm responsible for European furniture from the Middle Ages up to the year 1700. The Great Bed of Ware is what most of us, I think, would call an enormous four-poster bed. In the museum, we don't actually speak of four-poster beds, we would categorise it as a tester bed, and the tester is what you might think of as the wooden ceiling of the bed. The bed has a frame of dark carved oak, and at the foot of the bed there are two huge carved posts standing up like classical columns, and at the head of the bed a full-width bed head, completely solid. These three elements support the panelled oak tester, the ceiling, and from that hang six very bright red and yellow paned curtains. If you were in the bed, you could draw the curtains across each side and across the foot of the bed, so you were lying completely enclosed in a kind of room. It's over three metres wide, three metres deep and nearly three metres high. It's a statement bed, fit for the highest of high personages, with room for several of their friends. The bed completely dominates the space that it's in. There's an almost audible expression of awe and surprise when people come upon it for the first time. It must have been made around 1590. That's based on its overall design compared with other beds and woodwork that is firmly dated and that it was in use in an inn in the town of Ware, hence the name, Great Bed of Ware. 
Because in that year, 1596, a German tourist, one Prince Ludwig of Anhalt-Koten, slept in what must have been the bed. And years later, he recorded his visit in verse. At where was a bed of dimensions so wide, four couples might cosily lie side by side, and thus without touching each other abide. But despite the bed's subsequent fame, we don't know for sure who made it and why. For me, I think the most convincing hypothesis as to why it was made is that it was an outsized curiosity to attract customers to stay at one of the many inns at Ware. However the idea originated, it was a brilliant bit of marketing, enhanced, no doubt, by stories of the larks that people got up to in the bed. I think of it like one of those stretch limousines with mirrored windows about the length of a swimming pool that prowl around town on a Saturday afternoon. You wouldn't want to own one or to travel any distance in it, but lots of us quite like the idea of trying one out with friends for a bit of a laugh. However the idea originated, it was a brilliant bit of marketing for the Ware Tourism Office. But first of all, where is Ware? And are Waretonians aware of their town's claim to fame? I'm doing a bit of a play on the two meanings of Ware. My name's Jonathan Ruffle. I'm a writer and historian, and I had the great good fortune to write a podcast walking tour to Ware about ten years ago. You draw a line north from London, going up towards Cambridge, or in medieval terms, Walsingham, which was a pilgrimage site, that will place you in where. And if you use your historical imagination and you think, what's a day's coach ride out of London? Well, guess what? That's where where is. I mean, to be absolutely technically accurate, the Great North Road used to actually run on a slightly different path. But a medieval baron, for want of another word, detoured the road through where so he could charge people for crossing his stone bridge over the river. Are people in where aware of the bed itself? I think they probably are, and they probably aren't terribly delighted that it's the thing everybody knows where for. You know, we've established it's actually in the Victorian Albert Museum, so it's a tiny bit of a red herring along with everything else. And it must be a really tiresome thing where you say, where'd you come from? I come from Hertfordshire, I come from where? And some twerp goes straight back at you, where the great bed of where comes from, you know. I'm sure you want to be known for other things. But at the same time, with all due respect, there isn't the great bed of Hunstanton. There isn't the great bed of of Wisbeach, although I should add I did a walk in Wisbeach and it was actually very, very nice. So we've established that we've got an enormous bed and one which people still talk about more than 400 years later. Now, obviously, lots of things can go on in beds, But let's assume the people stopping off at the inn, attracted by this massive marketing ploy, just want a good night's sleep. Back then, that wouldn't be unusual, because sleep was a serious subject. My name is Professor Sasha Handley. I work at the University of Manchester, and amongst other things, I'm a historian of sleep, and I have an award-winning book called Sleep in Early Modern England, published in 2016. In the late 16th century, when the Great Bed of Ware was made, people took their sleep incredibly seriously. It was very important to them for two main reasons. The first was, really influential, was a system of healthcare called the Six Non-Natural Things. And they were six habits or practices that you had to make sure you took good care of to keep your body in the right state. 
for long-term health. And sleep was one of those six categories. So they were really careful to look after their sleep patterns to make sure they got enough sleep during the night. The second main reason that they really treasured sleep was for religious reasons. They understood regular sleeping habits to be part of their Christian duties because the body was something that had been gifted to them by God and therefore they had to look after it on a day-to-day basis by keeping it in good fettle. They really valued regular bedtimes and regular waking up times. There were special insults for people who stayed too long in bed. One of my favourites is slugger bed. You call somebody a slugger bed if they spent too long under the covers. Well, I suppose if you were lucky enough to be in the great bed of wear, it wouldn't be surprising if you were tempted to hit the snooze button a few times. So, we've established that the bed was probably made as a kind of marketing ploy to attract weary travellers passing through Ware to one of the town's many inns. The idea of using a bed as a tourist attraction sounds in many ways rather unlikely to us. We perhaps like to think that marketing is something of a modern invention, but back in the 16th century they were pretty canny. In English royal palaces in the 16th century, distinguished foreign visitors were customarily shown the very large beds in which kings and queens had slept and sometimes died. The bed actually did a fair bit of travelling in its own right among the inns at Ware because it was bought and sold on a regular basis over 250 years. So in 1610, it's recorded at the White Hart. By 1700, it's at the George... It's at the Crown between 1728 and 65, and by 1765 it's moved on to the Saracen's Head. It's a real pub crawl. Effectively a bypass, a turnpike toll road, had been built round Ware, therefore why now stop at Ware? Which of course has got 16, 17, 18 I believe, maybe even more, coaching inns gagging for your custom. So which of those do you go to? Well you go to the one with the great bed of Ware if you're travelling in a stagecoach full of friends, because all of you can stay in this one bed. The practicalities of life in this period meant that people were much less squeamish about snuggling up with their chums. It was fairly common practice to have to share a bed at an inn or lodging house with somebody else, even if you didn't know them, and there were special rules of etiquette that applied. Typically, you would not expect to be sharing a bed with somebody of the opposite sex. So, same sex only, the owners of those lodging houses and inns would often try to match you up with somebody of a similar status to you. We know from anecdotal evidence in people's letters and diaries that they entered into lively and often pleasant conversations with their bedfellows. There are also special words used as a term of insult for people who didn't behave themselves in a shared bed situation or were just too noisy and snored too much. As well as that sort of lighter side of bed sharing, we know that there was a darker side in the sense that court records show us that people were often robbed in the night by a bedfellow that they didn't know. Some people were even murdered and nowadays we only have to worry about how to turn on the shower and the cost of that packet of peanuts we couldn't quite resist from the minibar. But you can see how an eager-to-please innkeeper, reluctant to turn away business, would have been tempted to slam everyone into one great big bed. But there's something else here, because, you see, back in the 16th century, a good night's sleep came with an intermission. We've got a lot of evidence to suggest that people actually slept in two separate cycles during the night. People typically referred to those cycles as their first sleep and their second sleep. And each of those phases would last for around four hours. 
and they were separated in the middle by a period of waking where you might stay in bed or you might actually get up and engage in some kind of activity around the house. We know that people were using that time to finish household chores. Some people were using it to brew beer, (laughs) reading a book, all kinds of different things. And we think that that widespread pattern of sleeping probably started to fade away as we approached the Industrial Revolution, widespread introduction of electric lighting and obviously more regimented urban-based work patterns. But what might it have been like to spend a night in the great bed of Ware. Ready? Let's give it a try. I think it would have been an amazing experience to sleep in it. You've got all the layers of the bedding. There's gold thread woven in with the linen. The colours shimmer. And then setting off all these colourful textiles, there's the richly carved woodwork, which is loaded with ornament. That carving also relates to the rites of passage that happen in bed in our lives, birth, marriage, death. Carved up on the headboard, there are naked satyrs, symbolising virility and sexual pleasure, fertility and that kind of thing. But at the same time, the theme of lust is also shown tamed by the gravity of marriage, So you've got lions up on the headboard, but they have rings through their mouths. They've been tamed. And beside them, rather austere-looking male and female sentinels, reminding the occupant of the bed, I think, of virtue and family duty... Now, I've heard that some hotels nowadays offer a refund if you haven't had a decent night's sleep. But would the innkeepers at Ware have had to put their hands in their pockets? Let's get the advice of an expert guide to the land of Nod, somebody who really understands the science of slumber. I'm Colin Espy, Professor of Sleep Medicine at the University of Oxford. It's good to have space in bed because we do know that couples who sleep together or when the kids jump into bed, it does interfere with our sleep. We do disturb each other. What happens is you're subject to what are called microarousals when the partner moves. And likewise, they suffer from microarousals when you move. These don't necessarily waken you up fully, but they do alter the depth of your sleep to some degree. I don't think you would necessarily get a good night's sleep with the great bed aware. When I see the pictures of it, I see something very grand, something almost like an object of art. You know, it's not a quiet thing. One thinks of a bed as a functional object. You don't want stimulation around about you. We say to people nowadays, don't take your smartphone to bed. And here with the great bed aware, you lie back and you see all these pictures and bright colours and fancy tapestries and drapes. It looks quite a stimulating, large object But there's no getting away from it. The great bed of wear does create a certain mood. And I don't think we should be coy about sex because it's, you know, obviously what nearly all of us think about when we come across an enormous great bed. In 1596, we hear about four couples lying side by side. That sounds plausible. In 1700, six citizens and their wives came from London in a frolic to sport themselves. In 1728, 12 butchers and their wives. Hmm. 
1732, it was large enough for 20 couples. And by 1765, there was a claim that 26 butchers and their wives lay for one night for a bet in the year 1689. You see, I promised you some bed of related shenanigans. But whatever happens in bed, there's no getting away from the fact that it's a place which is very much tied up with our sense of identity. It's a very personal space, isn't it? It's the place in which you were perhaps conceived. It's a place in which you were born. It's a place that you share with your partner. And it's a place that you in turn have your children. It's a place perhaps where you die. So it's very directly and intimately connected with our identity and all these transitions through life. And there's also a dark side to this. We know that the circadian night, the biological night, is a time when our mood is lowest. It's a place where you can have your darkest thoughts. One can feel very, very lonely. So I think the night, the bed and the bedroom are intimately tied into ourselves as individuals and to our personal histories. Over the years, strange and inventive traditions become associated with the Great Bed of Ware. Visitors liked to leave their mark, of course, and when you get close to the woodwork, almost all the exposed surfaces within easy reach have graffiti scratched into the wood, or little red spots of sealing wax, left, one imagines, by those who spent the night in it. A kind of 17th century version of I Was Ear. The earliest legible date that we found is 1653, so this is a long tradition. And I suppose it's evidence of the sense that the bed was always seen as something that belonged to everyone. It was kind of public property. In one sense, you know, it's vandalism. But in the other, I think you can almost imagine what's going on as a kind of veneration, as if for a holy relic, where people like to add a contribution to it. The Great Bed of Ware also has sealing wax on it, which is quite extraordinary. You know, will your sealing wax lose its flavour on the bedpost overnight? It's very counterculture. It's not to do with castles. It's not to do with, you know, the wonders of English literature. It's a considerably earthier prospect. And beds, of course, are intrinsically funny. The bed spent nearly 300 years as a kind of ribald novelty. But eventually, it was time to turf out its last slugger bed and become a different kind of attraction. In 1870, it was sold to the Rye House Hotel, which was not in Ware at all, but in a rival town just down the road, Hoddesdon. This was a different kind of tourist destination. It had 50 acres of gardens and a fairground. And in the years before the First World War, thousands of day-trippers visited at summer weekends by rail, return fare one shilling and sixpence, or Sharabank. And the bed was displayed in a, a special building with a medley of curios, including a Siamese pig, and a portion of the first Atlantic cable laid by the Great Eastern in 1865. By the 1930s, though, tastes had moved on. The bed was put up for sale again, and eventually came to the Victoria and Albert Museum. But only after a heated discussion about its historical and aesthetic merit. The museum, I think, felt some ambivalence about the purchase. It was not only the museum's largest piece of furniture in 1931 when it arrived, but it was also its most expensive piece of furniture ever. That price, £4,000, in fact, was four times the entire annual furniture department budget for new acquisitions. In case you're wondering, that's about a quarter of a million pounds today. But was it a piece for the V&A because it was so well known, or should it come into the museum because it was an outstanding piece of design? 
I think actually to their credit, my predecessors, the furniture curators at the time, were more open-minded and they recognised the particular qualities of the bed and its popular history. No doubt in a different period, a Prime Minister of the day would have called it the people's bed. As we come towards the end of our story, don't deny that you've been wondering what it might be like to sneak into the museum, step over the red rope and slip between the covers. Because all Tudor beds are exclusively made of wood, they are really susceptible to bedbugs and infestations of all kinds of nasty creatures. And people went to incredible lengths to try and get rid of those bugs, including hanging dried cow dung at the bottom of the bed to attract the flies away from them or smearing their faces and hands with rose oil to protect themselves from bites in the night. So I don't think I would have liked to have had a turn in it myself. Personally, I think I'd be more worried about the weight of that wooden tent-like structure, really, knowing the slightly rickety nature of the whole construction. My great worry would be that something would come loose and I wouldn't want to be found in the morning, a pair of feet sticking out from under the collapsed tester. (laughs) Oh, I'd love to spend a night in the bed where just to say I'd done it. (laughs) I think I could probably sleep in it. I don't think I would particularly welcome you know, a bunch of strangers with me in the process, though. How on earth else might one connect with the sleeping time, the dreams and the overtime after lights out that has been conducted in one single place by all sorts of people over hundreds of years? And I think we join in with historical people a lot more interestingly when we look at an object like this, or at least I do. Would I like to spend a night in the Great Bed of Ware? Yes. So there you have it. Our story's at an end. And I hope you're feeling sleepy now. So drift off and perhaps you'll dream of a gigantic bed. The lives of those who've slept in it over the centuries. And its place in our national psyche. I think people should go and see the Great Bed of Ware and use it as an opportunity to think about what sleep means for you. Why does it matter? Are you making sure you're getting enough good sleep? Are you prioritising enough in your life? I think nowadays we play a little bit fast and loose with sleep. So a visit to the V&A to see the bed would give us pause, I think. I mean, of most of the objects in the V&A, the bed of wear is one that deserves a belly laugh because it is about exaggeration and humour and having a bit of fun and embarrassment. And when we see the bed today, we're doing exactly what visitors have done for 400 years. We're smiling at it and wondering at it. The Great Bed of Ware is part of the collection of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. It was acquired in 1931 with the help of the Art Fund. You've been listening to Art and Stuff with me, Ben Miller. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and tell your friends. 